90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. Week two of teaching, down. Sort of week two. I mean, we haven't had a full week yet. Yeah, the weather's been kind of wild. We had an ice storm, mm-hmm. and you had a sort of ice storm. Yeah, we had an ice storm, too. We we had a quarter inch here, so. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty good. Um, I love, I mean, ice storms are terrible. It ravaged our trees a couple years ago, you know, just ravaged them. But it's so cool to be out in one, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't like it because we burned so much propane. So much propane. <laughs> trying to keep the building 50 so the pipes didn't freeze. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I think we ended up using 300 gallons in 11 days. <gasps> oh, that's rough. That's yeah. rough. We filled up propane, and it is crazy expensive here. But now we sound like old people talking about this, but that's okay. Because we are. <laughs> It's true. Next, we'll talk about how they built propane. Well, sort of, actually. Actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a nice unplanned segue, right? <laughs> right. No, no, we can't segue yet because I have to bring back a little piece of nostalgia for you and oh goodness, many of our listeners. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. I was so excited because tonight for dinner, I got to travel back to the 90s and have Pizza Hut. <laughs> Because they closed down all of the ones near us. Oh, my gosh. And uh, my wife had to go for her job to training and happened to be near a Pizza Hut and drove Pizza Hut back. So we have Pizza Hut once a week. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's just not fair. (laughs) And we had Pizza Hut tonight, which is super funny. It's it's forty five minutes to an hour depending on traffic to the That's nearest. That's unbelievable. Hut. How do you not have a Pizza Hut? Yeah. Wow. What did Arkansas we have every do to other pizza, pizza Hut? Yeah. Like. Oh my goodness. I didn't know that about you. I'm very sad. Well, very it's sad. in Arkansas still, but it's just the Kansas City conglomerate that owned all of the franchises in Northwest Arkansas, or most of the franchises. Uh, Went bankrupt. Oh, okay. And so they're now various things. Some of them are raising Cane's chicken, which I don't mind. Um, yeah. The one in our town got dozed and is now a car mart lot. Oh, that's sad. Man. Hmm. That's a bummer. My husband was just talking about there is a Pizza Hut in Illinois. It's close to the Illinois-Iowa border that is still like the OG... Yeah. 80s Pizza Hut. Yeah. And he's eaten there numerous times, and I'm very jealous. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, we need to get in the plane and... Yep. Then we're going to go to Pizza Hut. Go to Pizza Hut. (laughs) That'd be the best thing ever. I'd be pro that. For sure. Oh, my goodness. Oh, But no, I just just had to put that little bit of nostalgia in there. That's great. Because that, that was the highlight of my week. Oh, I'm so glad and also really hilarious that we both had Pizza Hut tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did you have? Uh, just pepperoni pizza. 
Oh, see, since yeah. this is a rare occasion, I, we had to get the big dinner box with yes. two cheese lovers, pizzas, and breadsticks, and oh, hot wings. See, that's what I would... We also had hot wings. Um, my son just takes those into his room. Like, we don't see any of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's my favorite. I love their... De- I love Pizza Hut deep dish. It's the best. Mm-hmm. And yes. the cheese lovers, but I was not involved. I just... We have Late Labs, which is awful there's two until eight o'clock labs um yeah so i just showed up and ate and it was great (laughs) there you go yeah (laughs) oh that's funny i think we could probably turn eating pizza hut into a segue for what we're going to talk about but not on a you know family show (laughs) well i mean also though you you got to get those pizza ovens hot with something that's true. And it's probably natural gas. <laughs> that is absolutely true. And yeah, we're still still talking about it because, I mean, you know, there's an awful lot to talk about drilling rigs and all this other fun stuff about getting resources or rocks out of the ground. But the whole point was you read a book about this and that's what got us talking. And on this entire 2024 tour of the um the oil fields essentially yeah so we're going to talk about the controversial topic of fracking mm-hmm. we don't do a lot of controversial stuff i mean yeah and <laughs> i don't uh, no, no, to me this is partially artificially controversial but <laughs> i mean it's artificially production too right Right. That's, so that's okay. it's <laughs> we're talking about the mechanism called... of it, right? Like I mean, the mechanism of it's very interesting and it goes back really right. far. I think a lot of people probably think this is something that's like new, but it's not. No. No. And you know, you'll hear it called hydraulic fracturing or hydrofracturing or you'll hear it lots of names, but fracking is the the common slang. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really using fracturing of the rock and we've talked about this in our past shows of well okay now you've got this formation and you've got a hole through it but you need to get the gas the oil whatever from the formation into the hole and best way to do that's big fractures so Mm -hmm. back in the 1860s they figured out that if you put dynamite nitroglycerin tnt stuff like that down a well and exploded it you could increase the production out of that well. <laughs> How do you think they figured that out? Well, interestingly enough, you know, we always say that things go back to defense all the time, okay. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the exploding torpedo, as it was called, was patented by an Edward Roberts. Okay. Colonel. Edward Roberts of the U.S. Civil War. Oh, I was going to, don't torpedoes inherently explode? (laughs) So Colonel Roberts was very used to dealing with exploding things. (laughs) So to me, it's logical as, (laughs) as it would be that he would say, well, I wonder if we can break this rock up by using explosives. And... He he patented this, yeah, the, the exploding torpedo, which is really not much more than a can with explosives in it. Awesome. 
interestingly, well, one, to me, it's interesting you could patent that. Yes. Period. But mm-hmm. I have a whole rant on patents. I've been on that rant a lot recently. <laughs> so not going to go on that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the early versions of this, they would lower the cannon on a wire line and then drop a weight down the wire line. And when the weight would hit the blasting cap on top of the can, everything would go off. And okay. there were some issues with false triggers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so later they did this cylinder in a cylinder model where you would light a fuse, seal this thing up, and drop it down the well. And you had so long before the fuse would uh, cause the explosive to go off. Okay. Hopefully a long time. I'm awful on the 4th of July. Like, I am so scared of something detonating too soon. <laughs> so, yeah, I would not have that job. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, these were... These were obsoleted by hydraulic fracturing, but for a long time, this is what fracking was. Mm-hmm. Um, the patent expired in 1879, but what I thought was really one of the interesting things, and I, when I read this in the book, I thought, oh, that sounds like maybe true, maybe not, uh, but from the research that I have done on it, as far as I can tell, it uh-huh. is true that the term moonlighting comes from fracking. Okay. Because of the explosions? Be- no, because this Colonel Roberts guy would charge a couple hundred bucks per torpedo and a royalty of about one-fifteenth of your well to come <laughs> do oh. the stimulation on the well. Oh, my gosh. And so people started knocking off this idea, even though it was patent protected, and making their own illicit torpedoes. Okay. And they would detonate them at night. Hmm. <laughs> Hence the term moonlighting. Wow. And Robert spent over a quarter of a million then dollars to protect his patent. He hired the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, and they would follow these people around and file lawsuits and all kinds of stuff. No kidding. So he was the only one that could put explosives in a can down a well. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I understand doing it at night because no one's around, but isn't it easier to see an explosion at night? Well, the explosion's way underground. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Unless you do it wrong. (laughs) Unless you do it wrong. And a lot of times they would fill the wells with water to help contain the explosion, which makes sense. Oh, yeah, that does, actually. Hmm. Uh, But, yeah, so that's where the term moonlighting came from. That is amazing. Yeah, okay. I did not know that at all. This is so intriguing to me. Along the lines of cloud seeding, really. Like, who, who's like, you know what? Let's throw something explosive down there and see if we can get more flow back, right? right. You know, it's, it's not like they were out there measuring porosity and permeability of these rocks and were just like, yeah, this will do it. This will increase that. But, I mean, that's the whole point of fracking, right? You increase the porosity and permeability. Yeah. Yeah, and but it's... Another method they tried that the book talked about was acid stimulation. Right. Mm-hmm. I think this went just... on for a while, right? 
yeah, I mean, it, they would dump, this is mostly in the 30s, 30s, 40s, uh, dump large volumes of incredibly corrosive acids in mm-hmm. to try to erode the rock around the well. <laughs> but I mean, that has its own problems of eroding anything else down there too. So, And also, you know, if you've got a really nice quartz sand, it's going to take a lot of acid to get any fracturing happening in that and very nasty acid mm-hmm. yeah not like just some fun hydrochloric acid but really gross stuff so mm-hmm. right that is that's explosive anyway so you might as well just put the dynamite down there so right but, you know that's interesting okay cool wow since the early 1800 or late 1800s that is yeah so this has been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's just gotten a lot more scientific now, I guess. Yeah, like I, I think the the planning is much more scientific. Mm-hmm. The execution is still pure brute force because that's yes. what it has to be to break rock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I will say, so I got to go out on a couple of frack jobs um, when I worked in the industry, and it was certainly like we alluded to last week, not that exciting on the surface but you know you knew stuff was happening deep down because you were monitoring everything you could possibly monitor right so these things are very highly controlled um and so you could see the the pressures change abruptly and then you could see the the flow back um of the oil or gas, whatever you were getting. But it wasn't like there were explosions and you could feel it or anything like that. That's not what happens. No. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't, there's not geysers coming out of the surface or you don't yeah. frack and suddenly oil starts spewing out of the top of the Christmas. <laughs> like, it's, it's really just a bunch of semi-trucks and loud diesels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. Lots of tanks, but that's... Yeah, that's it. And because what's you have to really... Have... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So it's just a lot of tanks because you have to have somewhere to put all that stuff before you put it in the ground and when it comes back out. Yeah, and what's really cool is on modern rigs, which you're not using a drilling rig to frack. I'm saying rig in terms of all the pumping equipment. Yes, correct. Uh, they can be injecting... About 10 cubic feet, so 10 by 10 by 10 cube, or a little over 2 by 2 by 2 meter cube, a second of fluid. Mm. 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 And that's not, you know, that's not like a meter diameter hole or anything. No, I mean, we're talking at, at depth probably about, what, you know, 9 Eight, Yeah, inch 9 inches, if you're lucky. Diameter bore? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It is a lot. And up to 15,000 PSI, so 100 bar. Mm-hmm. That's what you need to break rock, especially at depth. <laughs> yeah. And so a lot of this fluid, you know, you say, well, where does it all go? Well, it goes out into the formation. It opens cracks, and it has to fill those cracks to repressurize to continue cracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also do just lose some to formation. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you lose quite a bit to formation. Uh, 
but you get to produce it back later. Don't worry. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think the coolest thing and the most interesting engineering thing to think about with fracking, I mean, the mechanics of pressurizing all this stuff. So you're right. Like, you don't, drilling rigs don't rest. You want them in there and out of there as soon as possible because it costs tens of thousands of dollars a day to have a drilling rig running. Okay, so the frack job happens long after the drilling rig is gone. You set up all the stuff to produce the well, and then they come in and they have their own, you know, rigging up that they do right there. But it's not from the drilling rig. So don't look at this Wikipedia page about hydraulic fracturing that has a drilling rig doing this. That's not true. <laughs> no, the, there are about <laughs> 20 things wrong with the diagram on Wikipedia. Yeah, so don't, don't follow along there. <laughs> Um, but I think the most interesting thing besides the fact you're breaking those rocks is the stuff that they have used and still use to put into those fractures. Because once you make a fracture, fine. So you've broken the rock and that's good. But sometimes these are really deep wells, right? 10,000 feet or something. And so those fractures are just going to close right back up if you don't prop them open with something. And you do that with something called propent. Because <laughs> engineers welcome. are creative. <laughs> exactly. It's known for it, in fact. Um, <laughs> but what that stuff is, is so cool. It's all kinds of things. So many different kinds of propents that you can use. I mean... Yeah, I mean Canonically, we'll say like, oh, well, you mix sand in with it. And, you know, that's right. something that's very porous and permeable. But it's way more complicated than that. Yeah, it is way more complicated than that. And so, like, there's, so frac sand is a thing that is the thing that people mostly use. But you want to use, like, nice round sand. So now you got to find a nice quartz sand that's pretty mature. Because if it's angular, that's not going to give you the porosity and permeability. You want to stack little spheres together and not angular pieces, right? Not necessarily angular pieces. Um, and so they actually kind of started to, they, so they've been mining sand. A bunch of it comes from Canada. And so um, that's where you want that because it has the, these like perfect little, or perfect little spheres. Uh, Ottawa sand comes from Ottawa. Ottawa sand, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. So that's where you get a lot of that sand. But they also have tried all kinds of other things, like nutshells. Like walnut shells was one thing that they were using yeah. as propent. I thought that was pretty cool. And then you can make fake sand, right? So there's a lot of different types of fake plastic or whatever sand. You got to be careful of plastic, though, because it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Um, yeah. that you can <laughs> stick down there to serve as the propent that holds these fractures open once you've created them. Yeah. And to get that down there, we're not just using plain old water either. Yeah. We're mixing the water with some magic blend of things mm-hmm. <laughs> that... Uh-huh. depending on what kind of frack you're going for, generally you want to increase the viscosity because that's going to let you carry more propent quicker. Right, exactly. And this is where, like, one of the, you know, the environmental issues associated with fracking is that it's not just, like, water and walnut shells. That probably wouldn't be a big deal, right? It's the chemicals that you put into that frack water. But, I mean, you're not spilling it out all over the... 
surface, generally, right, it's as contained as anything else. And there's a lot of rules about putting that in and then making sure that you recover a lot of your fracturing fluid anyway. I mean, that's fine because you want to recover what you can and reuse it. Yeah. And what's really cool is they've been working with using waterless fracks. Like they've actually used propane to frack before. Interesting. Under extreme pressure. And then you just produce the propane back out. And then you don't have to do anything. No recovery. You just sell it again. Yeah. And you're not dealing with producing a bunch of briny, nasty water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, that is interesting. I did not know that. No. I mean, there's obviously problems with it, and yes, uh, it only works mm-hmm. in certain situations, mm-hmm. but it has been something. These, these waterless fracks are actually a thing now. Hmm. That is super interesting. Yeah, I worked for a company that was definitely involved in a lot of, like, a lot of the cutting edge of hydrofracking. Um, and we would jokingly say, you know, that they were nuclear fracks cause they were so big, but I mean, they've used nukes to frack things, right? They have. And that's a whole other show I want to do because it is just fascinating <laughs> what the government encouraged us to try. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Um, yeah, so these companies, but this is really cool that I, I didn't know, you know, when the, Halliburton first started doing it, and the first commercial hydraulic frack was in Oklahoma. Sure was. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. And they talked to the guy that pushed for it in the book that I read. Oh, all right. Because it wasn't that long ago, right? Well, I mean, it was that long ago, but it wasn't like... <laughs> it wasn't not long ago as we normally talk about long ago right, on this exactly. podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um so what they say about it? Well, just how hard it was to get anybody to believe that this would work. Oh, And get really? somebody to let them try. Mm, okay. And then, you know, the first attempt didn't really do much. Mm. Uh, okay. So to get somebody to let them try again. And the book that I read is called The Boom by Russell Gold. Okay. If anybody else wants to read it. Uh, it was pretty good. I thought it was a very balanced, you know, there's a lot of emotional. Yeah, for sure things around fracking um there was you know the gasland movies and Mm -hmm. and all that and certainly there are risks associated with it yes you you can have bad cementing that causes groundwater to get contaminated there's been cases where they've actually hit wells that they didn't know were there Ah, yes (laughs) and blew the plugs out of them and Mm -hmm. caused issues Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. Because you got to remember, like, in areas where there's a lot of resource, there's not just a few wells. Like, it's Swiss cheese. Oh, yeah, exactly. And these, um, it, so when you quit producing a well, you're supposed to P&A the well, plug in a band in the well, and you're supposed to document that, right? But these tons of wells that are not documented are called orphan wells. So they've been abandoned, and no one knows they're there. Um, and we should get this guy on the podcast. So one of my colleagues actually uses geophysics to find um, that cool app on your phone that we talked about. Um, it 
looks for orphan wells. And it's pretty neat, so you can see them because usually they have casing and all that other stuff that we talked about in there. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, you don't want to drill into one of those. <laughs> Not okay. Yeah, and as of so the most recent statistic I could find was something like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But there were over 1 million fracked wells in the U.S. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's if that's 10 years old, that number is way more than that. Easily doubled. <laughs> Easily, yeah. Uh, well, okay, I don't know about easily. A million's a lot. I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, th- there there are places in Pennsylvania and in North Dakota where you can walk across that part of the state on wellheads just about. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I don't know if I would be shocked if there was more than that. Yeah. And now... It's becoming, I mean, it's not cheap to do. Like, this is still not a cheap thing, but it is, I'm not going to say ubiquitous, but it's pretty common in almost every well that you frack it. Well, and it's because we've already got all the easy stuff. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Now we're having to drill these tighter formations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said there's a lot of emotion around it. A lot of people say, well, it's very bad. Um, there are certainly consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends on if you want that energy or not. Yep, exactly. That's exactly And certainly right. some things could be done more responsibly, probably. Uh, In every overall, aspect of everything we do. <laughs> yeah. I think, but overall, there's, like, the, the producers don't want to do damage either. Right. Generally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is generally true. Um, and I think a lot of the complaints are about, well, it's, it's loud. It's, you know, disruptive to the flow of life while this drilling and fracking is happening. We talked about how disruptive drill rigs can be. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's, it is also powering that local economy. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's, um, it is an interesting thing and it, it goes back to like, why it's such a thing now is like you said, all the easy stuff's been done. And so now, you know, before shale was the reservoir and that would migrate or it was the source rock and it would migrate into a reservoir. And then we took all the oil out of the reservoir. And then, I mean, fracking made it possible for us to start drilling directly into the source rocks Um, Because what shales lack is porosity and permeability. And now you can go directly to the source, give it that porosity and permeability through hydraulic fracturing, and now you can, you know, produce it directly from there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so every shale well gets fracked for sure. Right, and you in the U.S., we're dealing with the Marcellus and the Bakken, namely. Yeah, the Bakken's a big one. Um, if you live in the southern U.S., I mean, we've done all kinds of things, right? Like the Fayetteville Shale, that's that's really shallow. Those are really shallow. And the company I used to work for had a lot of stuff going on in the Fayetteville Shale there in Arkansas. And, yeah. I mean, it was like the wells were like 1,500 feet deep. That was it. Yeah, and then you'd frack them. So it's kind of crazy. So that's when we talk about being irresponsible, right? Because you're very close to the surface, but yeah. 
Right. Yeah. But um, also, you're not going to have an aquifer in a shale. So there's that too. Right. There's parts of Arkansas where you have for sure thousands of feet of shale. And so actually getting water is kind of hard because you can't just drill, you know, your normal 100 foot well and start to get water. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there are others, you know, those are the main ones, but there's the Barnett in Texas, mm-hmm. um, the Eagle Ford. Yeah. Yeah. The Eagle Ford is a much smaller than the other ones, but definitely once fracking became a thing, the Eagle Ford became, became, you know, a very viable play. But man, I bet the Bakken, the Bakken is just crazy. It's so much shale and you just frack it and you just produce it forever. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Going through, you know, getting ready to talk about this, I was trying to think of, like, what I remembered about fracking. Um, And slick water fracks, that's the thing, you know, because it's not just water. It's this weird stuff that they put in it and all these agents. But when you do the fracks that are multiple stages, now that's really weird, right? Because when you drill a well and you go down and you're just, go straight down through all these different units. You don't just, and then you have to perforate it. We talked about like, you know, perforating it and producing it. You don't just produce like everything that you're getting out there, right? Some things you don't want because some of the formations are filled with water or whatever. Um, And if you're looking for oil, maybe you don't want to produce gas for whatever monetary reasons or anything like that. So you have to be, specific about which units you want to produce from. And so you can actually be specific about how you frack too. It's not just letting it loose like the dynamite and not knowing where it goes, right? We can be very intentional about where we're putting this highly pressurized liquid now. Right. And most of these wells are horizontal. So they go down into the formation of interest and they turn where they turn. We call that the heel. And where the well stops, we call that the toe. Mm -hmm. And you put in packers, which are, think of them as kind of inflatable truck tires, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Donuts. Yeah. you, You put these in where we can segment the well off into segments or stages. And there are these sleeves that go in these fracking sleeves that let us only pressurize one stage at a time mm-hmm. which is really interesting mm-hmm. yeah so now you can really pinpoint exactly where you want to be for maximum production without wasting all this and and without being irresponsible in terms of how much hydraulic fracture fluid you're putting down there and, you know, how much of a mess you're going to make, essentially. Well, and you can put more power per area mm-hmm. into it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the, in these sleeves, they're, they have a seat, a ball seat in them and a little moving piston. And so you drop a ball a big steel metal ball or now they have fancy ones that can dissolve over time and all kinds of stuff. Oh, but you would drop a ball into the well and it goes down and 
the stage or the, the sleeves get progressively smaller as you go towards the toe. So the first ball that you put down is a relatively small one mm-hmm. and it passes through several of those sleeves until it gets to the, the first sleeve. And it seats and pushes a piston forward, which uncovers some little vents that connect pressure to the formation. Mm-hmm. All of the ones before it still have the vent covered, so they're not pressuring the formation there. You're just pressuring it here. Right. Great. Okay, so now you, you frack, and then you drop a larger ball into the well. It goes through some sleeves, and then it gets to the sleeve right before the one that you just set. And it, the ball sets in the seat, pushes the piston, closes off the stage that you just fracked, and uncovers the vents for this stage. Mm-hmm. And you just keep doing that with progressively larger and larger balls that you drop down the well. This is a very ceremonious thing to do, actually, at the wellhead, too. It's very fun and cool to be, you know, the person that gets to go put the, the packer up there. Well, and especially because if you put the wrong size ball down... Yeah. <laughs> it's a multi-million dollar mistake. Mm-hmm. You should run far and fast. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> that is exactly right, yes. So... Uh, <laughs> So that's very has to be carefully controlled because you have to put these down in the correct sequence, um, and then once it's done, some of these fancy new ones, like I said, dissolve out. Uh, traditionally, you would just start producing the well, and they would produce <laughs> with the fluid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. That could be a problem because sometimes if your well had complex geometry and had a low spot, they would hang up there, and then sand and stuff that you're producing. Get stuck. Would, yeah. And you could clog it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the sleeves, there's various... Sometimes you just produce through them, though they do have somewhat smaller diameters. Uh, sometimes you'll bring a rig back and you'll mill them out. Yeah. They're designed to be millable. Uh, it just depends on how much you think you're actually going to be able to produce over time out of the formation and how many stages you had. Because if you have a 16-stage frack... Uh, it's going to be, by the time you get to the toe of that well, the sleeves are pretty small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that is how multi-stage fracking works. And it's just, I love how well engineers think of how can we do something two miles away from us in the most simple and foolproof way possible when we can't see what we're doing and the only tools we have are gravity, pressure, and a drill. <laughs> it is really impressive. That's come a long way from a torpedo pill <laughs> that explodes. Yeah. And I mean, yes, there are, you know, a lot of fancy ways we can do stuff, but wells are such a brutal environment the the simpler the better and it doesn't get a lot simpler than dropping a steel ball down it's not going to go be able to go anywhere else mm-hmm. and if it fits through the holes in something it's going to keep going if it doesn't it's going to set and do its thing so it's interesting it to say that it's very simple but boy you better believe there's nine quadrillion 
different types of frack sleeves and balls that can be sold to you. <laughs> oh, yes. And each of them has their own proprietary registered trademarked. A hundred percent. Whiz bang name of why they're better than the other round thing uh-huh. that you drop down a well. Exactly. They're all essentially the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. That's exactly right. I um, don't know if this has made it into the oil industry yet, but like in the tech industry for a while, the joke has been, you know, if it's, you're a startup, you have to drop all the vowels from your name. <laughs> I don't know if that's been a thing in the oil field. Oh, no, 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 not at all. I'm sure there's... I was I was looking them up because I was trying to find the ones that we used to use that I remember, which was back in the early days of you know stage fracking. Um, yeah, there were some really good ones out there. There's like I frack, <laughs> like that's real imaginative, <laughs> right? Yeah, stuff like that. Um, but what's really neat too, if we want to put some more science with this, is like you said, John. There's always a billion wells, right? It's usually not just one well out in the middle of nowhere. And so what you can use some of these wells for is to put seismic monitoring equipment down there to monitor your frack job. You sure can. And you can locate these seismic events and map out how you're fracturing around the well. And if you have enough sensors, you can do it in 3D And that can actually let you invert for the stress state around the well, which you Mm -hmm. probably already have a good idea of, but you can sure verify it. But then you can definitely verify it. I know that this micro seismic um, made a lot of difference in like the Barnett and the fracks that the company I worked for did back then because it wasn't propagating in the ways that they thought. And so these listening wells that they had close to the fracks really helped out because yes, even though we have a lot more technology, you don't know what's going on down there. (laughs) Like you got to guess, but the micro seismic was a way to help figure out exactly where the frack was going as opposed to just exploding something and hoping for the best. Right. And they also sometimes will inject radioactive tracers. Mm Mm-hmm. And yep. then they can look for those. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are often plastic pellets that have some some radioactive isotope in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then now there's a variation on the, the micro seismic as well, which is using fiber optics. That's cool. And so you can use fiber optic cable and some fun properties of that to get uh, seismic monitoring So I've seen some systems where you drop a weighted fiber into a monitoring hole and then you take kind of a big plastic sock and stick it in the well (laughs) and fill it with fluid and the sock will then pin the fiber optic cable up against the side of the well and you hook an interrogator up to it and listen. And now you get continuous monitoring down the well length. That is awesome. I had not heard about that. That's super cool. We used a really, really, really early version (laughs) of this system at Oak Ridge back when I was there. Mm -hmm. And our system, you can only interrogate, oh, it's like once every 30 seconds or 60 seconds. It was slow. Okay. Now they're interrogating at kilohertz. Wow. (laughs) Uh, What's that technology rule? What do they call that again? Oh, Moore's Law? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, and it's had some time to compound, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Yes. That was, we were, we had an early version of that system back in 09, 08. Wow. Yeah. Definitely come a long way since then. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's very interesting. For sure. The engineering yeah. of fracking is certainly interesting. Did the book address just that in general? Like, it's kind of a really amazing thing that we've done. Yeah, there was definitely some of that. Um, mm-hmm. There was some, like, I thought it was a very well-presented balance of yeah. these are the good things, these are the bad things, make up your own mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, yeah, there's a lot of bad things that can go wrong, you know, and that's for sure. And is this the smartest thing to do and all that jazz that we have to decide as humans you know how do we want to do this but just absolutely scientifically speaking it's very impressive it is and just from an engineering standpoint it's very impressive Mm -hmm. yeah um granted you know if you make somebody's water supply non-potable yeah (laughs) like that's bad for that person yeah not okay Mm -hmm. yes yeah so you know, I mean, speaking of water, it's about the best segue we're going to get <laughs> into everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. I thought that we needed to use a Daryl contribution, and this one was really interesting. <laughs> Drift of Earth's pole confirmed groundwater depletion as a significant contributor to global sea level rise, 1993 to 2010. Which, when I first read that title, the first image that popped into my mind was the ancient aliens guy. (laughs) I wish I would have read this in that dude's voice. (laughs) Yeah. Because I was like, okay, drift of Earth pole confirms groundwater depletion. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is really, I will say, it's kind of a dense paper. And so I really appreciated as many AGU open source stuff does, makes you do a plain language summary. Which, if that's plain language. Exactly. Like, <laughs> it is the non-subspecialist's. Yeah. summary exactly. it is the if you have a phd in geophysics this might give you some idea of what we did summary. that's exactly right i was like oh this is the regular abstract like this is the abstract i would have written not like yeah right definitely not a plain language summary there are so many questions that i have more questions than i got answers from this paper yeah but for me they weren't as much scientific as methodological yes okay me too <laughs> Um, okay, so the point that they're trying to do now, correct me if I'm wrong, is so they're trying to do this mass balance to figure out are there perturbations caused by moving water from the ground to somewhere else, right? And therefore changing sea level in the process. Right. So... 
everybody's worried about global mean sea level. Right. Because it's the thing that's going to make Florida Gone. not Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And one of the major things that is going to cause global mean sea level to rise is groundwater depletion. Which I never, I mean, obviously, I guess, sort of, but I wouldn't put that together, right? Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you use water out of the ground, the ground goes down. Also, the water goes somewhere. It's not going to go back into the ground. The ground's compacted. It's going to run off. Yeah, exactly. So it's eventually going to make its way to the oceans. So you're not only lowering the elevation of the land, but you're raising the elevation of the water surface at the same time. So double whammy. Right. And they they looked at shifts in the Earth's rotational pole to try to determine what groundwater depletion volumes were. This only made possible due to the GRACE mission, which is a gravity orbiting gravitational observatory. Yeah, I almost quit reading when they started to talk about the geoid... Yeah, the geoid, your favorite thing. Exactly. <laughs> but so, I mean, that's what you need to do when you're talking about rotation. So I understand. Yeah, because you're able to get from from Grace, you're able to look at gravity perturbations and their evolution over time. And any redistribution of mass on the Earth is going to cause, because basic physics, mm-hmm. shifts in the rotational axis and or speed. Okay. So when they're talking from the very beginning in the methods about taking into account all of this, right? Because if you're looking at terrestrial water, groundwater is obviously the majority of that, but there are also dams. So now you've got a lot of water at the surface. So that's going to affect all the things you're just saying. So my first glaciers and glaciers Right? And that's going to do the same thing because then you have to worry about once the glaciers are gone, you're going to have isostatic rebound of the Earth's surface. And so you have to, you know, even out the Earth is rising up, but also the water's rising. So how do you do that? But my first comment that I highlighted here was that they looked at dams because they said dams are a huge factor in sea level height because you are impounding so much water on the land that's not going into the ocean okay great i understand that they use this thing okay they say completion they looked at 7320 dams that have a cumulative capacity of about 7000 square kilometers since 1900 okay but there are over like 100,000 dams in the US this number seemed ridiculously small to me. Yeah, but I bet if you look at the distribution of number of dams versus volume that that dam holds back, I bet it's logarithmic. Like, I, I, mean, I bet very few dams hold back most of the water. It's got to be, but wow, I just would have thought there would be a lot more than that. My my comment on that was, I don't see even how this is a very large volume of water, mm-hmm. how it is still much more than a drop in the figurative bucket. Yeah. Okay. Because the oceans right. are massive. Mm-hmm. 
Like you're looking at 70% of the Earth's surface is covered in a very deep body of water. And on the 30% that is left, that's land, we have these little shallow things that we've built. <laughs> I guess that's why only 7,000 of them make a difference. Like, to me, it's like, well, okay, it's a minor contribution. You can do math to prove it or think through it. But the detail that they have in here, talking about how ocean currents, barometric pressure, ocean bottom pressure, the winds, how that changes, like, the rotational parameters. They're taking all of that into account, too. What kind of computer did they do this on? Yeah. And you know there are lots of parameters that can be tweaked in a model like that to make it fit. Exactly. So it's like this was nuts to me. Looking at, you know, general mean sea level change, but the effects of barometric pressure, ocean bottom pressure, winds and currents, and then something I had to look up, steric effects of the water column. So what are steric effects of the water column? Uh, so it's just essentially if you have hot water, it takes up more volume than cold water. Right, so okay. effects so, that aren't, yeah, they are affecting the atomics, but they aren't like something that's changing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that makes sense using that, but my gosh, I don't know. Yeah, like I am impressed at the model fit. Yeah. Yes. The fact that the model can reproduce the trend mm -hmm. to me is very encouraging. The fact that the model gets so close in both so direction and close. magnitude, yeah, to me, is not that impressive because a model with that many knobs, you can make it exactly. arbitrarily close. <laughs> mm -hmm. But if you make reasonable assumptions and you come out close, that is a more meaningful result to me. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's what was done here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, so I have this graph that I teach in my... Um, non-majors course talking about the water on earth right and most of it is groundwater so this makes total sense right because most of the terrestrial water is groundwater so if you're going to talk about what is the thing that's affecting it just like you said you're like well dams seem like a literal drop in the bucket but groundwater is you know like 97 percent of the terrestrial water so it should affect it right <laughs> yeah and what was really wild to me is we're able to measure, I mean, okay, forget the model that we were able to model it at all. We were able to measure that the rotational pole is moving yes. 4.36 centimeters per year <laughs> on a planet the size of Earth. We were able to measure something four centimeters. So that was my inches. other... That was my other comment was like, how valid is that measurement anyway? <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I believe it to 4.36. I would believe four. <laughs> Maybe fours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
But no, it's just, it's very impressive to me that we have data that are good enough, especially from space. Yes. Yeah. To be able to determine and see things like this. Mm-hmm. I was also impressed that you saw that much difference during this time period. Because, I mean, I know we've been warming for a while, right? Like, sure. And I totally get the irony of having a climate paper after a fracking show. Um, but, right. <laughs> but like 1993 to 2010, like, I feel like all the awful stuff has happened since 2010. So to be able to see this change in our rotational pole in that time period, like, what does it look like now? Right. You know, is this a lot? I mean, in 20, like 18, 17, we had that weird big jerk in, in Earth's magnetic pole position. Hmm. I'm just saying, something weird here. Some kind of weird true polar wander situation. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah. This was very interesting. I definitely had to spend a lot of time with this paper to get what was happening. And I don't know, again, I, this is very interesting. It's a very interesting premise behind this, and it makes sense with how much groundwater there is. But wow. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. It's pretty cool. So, yeah. Well, if you've got thoughts on Earth's rotational polar wander or <laughs> contributions of groundwater to it, uh, Shannon, how can they send those in? Don't panic geocast at gmail.com. Um, and we are on Twitter at Shannon Doolin at geo underscore Lehman and at don't panic geo. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You can support us too. Patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And until next week, remember don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.